Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. We don't think profit being our only motive is best for our company, for our customers, for our employees, and it's not best for our shareholders, that we need to embrace stakeholders that are you know, more than just the shareholder. And by doing that, I think we'll serve the shareholders best as well, but not everybody agrees with that. Milton Friedman didn't agree with that. We reject that singular focus on just maximizing shareholder return in the short term. We don't want to live that way. We don't think it's best as citizens and society. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. You just heard from Rob Waldron, CEO of Curriculum Associates in Massachusetts, an award-winning education technology company serving millions of young students across America. He's extolling the virtues of higher values in business today. Yes, it's touchy-feely stuff, but Rob Waldron lays it all on the line from happiness to the minimum wage. And he even weighs in on Black Lives Matter, how companies can combine profits and employee satisfaction. Curriculum Associates embraces capitalism as promoted by the organization known as Conscious Capitalism. And he'll be joined by the CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Alexander McCobin. There's certainly a need for healing and conscious capitalism provides a way forward for that because it unifies people from all sides of the political spectrum. What's interesting with the pandemic that we were just talking about is at the start of this, a lot of pundits and commentators said that this was an acid test for conscious capitalism explicitly in the Financial Times. They said, this is when we're going to see whether business leaders We're just using this to greenwash, make themselves sound good, but they're going to give up on it in order to just survive and become cutthroat in this challenging environment. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We'll get to my interview with Rob Waldron of Curriculum Associates and Alexander McCobin of Conscious Capitalism in just a moment. Conscious capitalism has certainly a new age sort of feel about it, but it deserves study. Whether it has answers to our present global malaise of widening income gaps and social unrest is worth asking. Conscious capitalism has many fans on the left and right, and it has critics too. Is it a sort of secular religion? Good question. Co-founded by John Mackey of Whole Foods and an academic colleague, it believes in friendship over fear in the workplace while promoting the values of capitalism. I do enjoy visits to Whole Foods. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. (laughs) 
I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Well, here's how Alexander McCobin of Conscious Capitalism explained to me what this whole idea is all about. Conscious capitalism is a way of thinking about capitalism and business that emphasizes the human nature of these endeavors. At the end of the day, all businesses are are groups of people working with one another to support each other and create value for other individuals. And capitalism is a structure that builds up from there. And what conscious capitalism brings to the table is a philosophy that not only emphasizes that, but provides guidance for how businesses and our economic structure can live up to the potential of that. So in particular, it's guidance for businesses to be run on four tenets, having a higher purpose than maximizing profit. It's not that profit is bad, it's a means of achieving a higher goal of serving other people. Second tenet is stakeholder orientation. Not just looking at a single stakeholder group like shareholders and thinking that all other stakeholders like employees, customers, and suppliers are there to serve the shareholders, but rather find win-win-win solutions where everyone benefits from a business's activity. The third tenet is conscious leadership. It's not only having leaders who are analytically smart or even emotionally intelligent, but even getting to systemic and spiritual intelligence, leading with things that may have been anathema in business before, like empathy and even love that leaders can embody and really drive the success of an organization with. And fourthly, conscious cultures, where everyone in an organization, not just the leadership, identifies with the values and is able to bring their full selves to work, be their authentic selves there, which actually also helps drive performance as people recognize that their companies are places where they can really be fully human and express themselves and be both who they really are and be the greatest contributors to the company's purpose as possible. So tell us a little bit about the history of it and how big your movement is in the U.S. and worldwide. At one level, conscious capitalism was what capitalism meant from the beginning. Adam Smith, the father of modern economics and capitalism, before he wrote The Wealth of Nations and was an economist, wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He was a moral philosopher and actually established this moral framework to think of economics through before we got to the current system. And conscious capitalism is a group of business leaders who have taken that concept, and a lot of them have been practicing this before the term existed, but especially after the 2008 financial crisis, leaders like John Mackey from Whole Foods, Kip Tyndall at the Container Store, and others started to meet with each other, and they had a different way of looking at business than most people. Whereas so many have said that business is all about money and profit, and some think that's good and some think that's terrible, they said business is actually about serving a higher purpose, and they wanted to articulate that and share it with the world and inspire other business leaders 
to join this movement, those who have been practicing business this way for a long time and those who may not have thought about it for a while. After that, they wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism, published in 2013, started this nonprofit organization to spread the philosophy. And today we have thousands of businesses and tens of thousands of business leaders across the United States and the globe who are active conscious capitalists on their own journeys of bettering themselves and their work to make a positive impact in the world. And it's incredible to work with amazing leaders like Rob, who's on the call with us as well today, and um, to build this movement up and get to a future where conscious capitalism is redundant. Yeah, we're going to bring Rob in in a moment. So Whole Foods co-founders had much of a stake in the founding of your movement. Yes, John Mackey was one of the founders along with other business leaders, like like I said, uh, Kip Tindall from the Container Store, Doug Rao at Trader Joe's. This from the beginning was business leaders coming to the table and saying, we practice business differently and we want to articulate what that means, find other business leaders who share this perspective and help other business leaders who may not have thought about business this way before adopt this philosophy. And now the momentum is really picking up for that as more and more business leaders across the globe recognize that this is the future. Well, certainly a fascinating concept. Who makes up those rules of what is good and bad in terms of business organization and capitalism? Is it a committee? Is it several individuals? Is it a think tank? So it's not so much about having rules. We don't have a checklist. What Conscious capitalism comes down to is a perspective of philosophy or a set of values. And different businesses in the conscious capitalism movement embody those values in different ways. And what's most critical is for them to be willing to come to the table and share what they're doing and share their best practices, their challenges, and open themselves up for conversation and discussion with others as to whether they're living up to their values, if they're fulfilling their higher purpose, or if they're creating win-win-win solutions for stakeholders and helping others go on that journey. It's not a binary. It's not that you are conscious or you're not. It's a scale and a journey. And there's always a way for individuals to be better. There's always ways for businesses to be better. And it really is a commitment. Is it a moving target? What might be one set of ideas, ideologies today could change in a few more years as society changes and evolves? Ideas certainly need to evolve as society evolves. I I think the way to, to really articulate that is the principles of having a higher purpose, having stakeholder orientation, finding those win-win-win solutions instead of having a win-lose mindset for stakeholders, and embracing conscious leadership and conscious cultures are, are permanent. They, they are things that are solid ground to hold as values in building up a business and fulfilling the potential of business. But the way those are articulated in business absolutely changes. We see companies changing their purposes with time. We see they need to think about how their decisions impact stakeholders in different ways over time. And they need to really think through the implications of what they're doing in instantiating those principles. So do you have a sort of a Ten Commandments pinned to the wall of different corporations who are practicing your principles? So often it's more important for businesses to not just put principles on a wall, but really live them out. And a lot of the work that we do is help businesses go from putting nice rhetoric on the wall 
and actually turning it into action, things that they're doing to benefit their stakeholders, to help their community. And that's the real challenge and opportunity for a lot of businesses. So it's pro-business, it's pro-free enterprise, it's not pro-socialism, it's not pro-communism. It would find favor with a lot of modern business organizations, except this has the twist of conscious capitalism, do good. What we've found is that conscious capitalism is a unifying philosophy. It's not right. It's not left. It's something that brings people who oftentimes disagree with each other together. At our 2016 CEO Summit, for example, on the same stage, we had Tom Perez, at the time the Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration up on stage, saying that conscious capitalism is the way of the future. And if every business was a conscious capitalist, he wouldn't think that there would be a need for the, the Labor Department. And he's now the head of the DNC. Following him, we had Arthur Brooks at the time, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, a very conservative organization, go on stage and say, again, conscious capitalism is the way every business should practice. And that's the, that's the future. Two people on very different sides of the political spectrum coming together saying, we agree with conscious capitalism and we need unifying forces like that. So you have support on the left and right, it sounds like. That's right. From all sides of the political spectrum. We're going to bring Rob Waldron in here to the discussion. He's CEO of Curriculum Associates. He's going to tell us what Curriculum Associates is all about. And you also embrace conscious capitalism. Rob, tell us how it fits in. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, John. Uh, Curriculum Associates is a company that makes curriculum of uh, kindergarten through 12th grade, principally in schools in the United States, a little bit international. Um, we have almost 30% of the kids in, in the United States using either our online or print resources. And um, so we're engaged in trying to be of service to schools and really service the teachers and administrators um, as well. And, and so we're in the middle of all the COVID things and so forth, uh, trying to help out. And, you know, conscious capitalism is a label and means a lot of things to different people. And you want to be a little careful all the time with labels. But the, the premise is is that um, organizations like ours should be of service. Our team, folks that we have here, 1,500 people, are super mission-oriented, and they, they don't get up in the morning and talk about cash flow and how exciting that is to spend their lives. What they understand, though, is if we want to get lots of investment in order to, as entrepreneurs, to try to create technology that's really of service to children and teachers, that we have to be able to give a return to the people who give us the capital to do that. And entrepreneurs have a place to help. So the government in America controls most schools, not all schools, but 90% of the kids. And, and that's as it should be. And, and these are very difficult problems. Children in poverty, children in behind, children need to go ahead, the latest science information, whatever it is. And entrepreneurs have a place to be of service, to support them, to create tools that help kids and so forth. And our team gets excited by the purpose of the work, our responsibility as citizens to serve others as much as anything. And, and we find that it's an important place to play in, in a civil society. The expectation, I think, sometimes is that the 535 Congress people and the one president of the United States are supposed to solve all the problems for the 300 and however many 50 million of us there are in America. I'm sure they can help. The fact is, is that if everyone was doing their part, and their citizenship to make 
our society a better place. We would be better served in our little narrow world that has to do with mostly kindergarten through eighth grade children in math and reading. You know, in Whole Foods' case, it was to make sure that uh, farms were sustainable and didn't uh, pollute while they were trying to grow vegetables. We believe that's a better society. We also believe that will lead to better businesses. People are more attracted to those businesses. The employees who are the top A talent want to go to places of purpose. We're more likely to attract those people. The customers that we have who understand that we attract the best employees, that we act with integrity every day. Uh, and aren't trying to game them, over-market them, anything. When they see that quality and, and the fact that people are gracious and genuine and have integrity, they're more likely to, to want to choose our products. That leads to more profits that we can reinvest back into the products and services that we deliver. So, Do you track the success of how it's working in your organization, such as measuring employee satisfaction, retention rates? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a great relationship. You know, you know, we've won um, the Boston Globe's Best Places to Work six years in a row. I think we'll probably win the seventh time here in just a month or two. 96% of the people who work at our company would recommend their best friend to work here. Our glass door ratings, uh, I think, are the highest in our industry. These metrics are uh, a testament to how people feel when they, they work here every day. And it, I'm sort of curious, Rob, to get some more examples of how it works in practice at your organization. Some of the some of the things that you put into practice based on conscious capitalism. Sure. Well, let's talk about uh, anti-racism because I know it's a, a topic that's you know relevant for today, and we have been involved in that journey. And you know, the difference between there's racism, which is evil, the the non-racism, which is we, we want to make sure we don't do anything wrong. And the anti-racism, which is like, how are we embracing uh, making a change and what is our responsibility for the change? And so among many responsibilities, we have a, a whole set of rubrics on this. Is the content that we're giving to children appropriate um, to be an anti-racist company? And so this is going to get highly politicized. But, you know, I was in a discussion uh, a few days ago on whether uh, a reading passage for, you know, in a, I think it was a fourth or fifth grade level should include a passage about uh, Ruby Ridges, which is the girl who had to, one of the first that had to kind of cross the race lines after Brown versus Board of Education. And as she was walking into school was spit on and so forth. And there were discussions in our organization about whether we should have that passage, whether it's stressful for kids to learn about these things and at what grade level should they be learning about these things and a passionate group of people who are saying, this is just history, this is just the truth. Are, are we just trying to protect one race of kids versus another, like the white kids should know about this too. And we had to debate whether to put in those reading passages and when and at what grade level and when to expose kids to things that were difficult, troubling, and scary, in fact, and have a discussion about what's right. What's the right thing to do? And our country now is gonna be having a discussion about this that turns into left and right. But a conscious company could figure out like, okay, let's stop worrying about who you're voting for and talk about as citizens, what's the best way to expose kids to the fact schools were segregated, they no longer are, and people stood up and said that we should do something different and not, not you know, there are going to be fights about that, but we have to decide the stake in the ground of whether to put that reading passage in at what grade level and having good, healthy conversations about figuring out what's best as citizens to talk about that on the LB. 
LGBTQ stuff that, you know, an issue is in a certain state in the United States, if we don't include passages that include what's going on with gay marriage and other things, then we are not accepted as a curriculum provider. And then some other states, if, if there's ever mention of that, or in a certain districts, we, we are excluded from that district. So we have to make a determination about as a company, how we're, we're going to do that. Should, you know, should we, you know, when we're working in a, in a Catholic institution, in an archdiocese, um, should the archdiocese have a right to turn all those things off? Or are we doing something wrong or not? And so these debates are very current in our world. And we have to decide who we are as citizens as a, as a company to, to do what's best. As you, as you unlayer these choices, they're, they're difficult just because of the ages of the students that you're dealing with and what, what people find acceptable or not acceptable in terms of content. So, well, Rob, let's just pick up on that because that is a debate uh, at the moment between Trump and the Democrats and Joe Biden on school curriculum. It's emerged as an issue. Uh, the Republican Party and, and Trump wants a, a pro-American pro-patriotic curriculum, whereas the Democrats are radically different. How do you see it? There are times when I read on one side or another where people are trying to have one side of a story or another side of a story that serves their particular purposes so that they can uh, remain in power or get in power in an election. And I think the job to do for someone in my position and the people who work here is just to tell the truth. The story of Ruby Ridges, the story of what happened with Brown versus education is its history. Uh, and we should be very diligent about people who try to obfuscate the truth or not tell the of truth. Of course. And, and there uh, are plenty of Americans yeah. on both sides who will agree on what the established facts are. Right. Well, I, I do. I mean, my own experience in the last few years is that there's so much rhetoric that maybe we're getting away from the truth uh, in order to try to get into power. And this, again, I think happens on both sides. So it, it is a bit of a fight to be able to make sure that we get the, the truth out there. You know, which raises another aspect of conscious capitalism. There are many individuals, many consumers, because of their religious convictions and ethical way of thinking, might disagree with certain stands taken by companies who have embraced conscious capitalism. And I, I think of the street riots and diversity issues, uh, pro-family issues. That that could raise a lot of issues for your group and for those trying to promote conscious capitalism? Well, I think that's right. I mean, the, the more conscious capitalism takes hold, the wider the tent, the more uh, we'll have internal debates about right and wrong and within the movement, just like anywhere. And, and you know, the, our society is uh, divided and uh, increasingly so, and with social media and other things exacerbating that. And so, so we're within conscious capitalism, uh, not that I'm thinking of myself in a movement per se, but at the, the more we bring people into the tent, you know, we're going to have to recognize that there are going to be debates about the right and wrong of these things. I think the difference is, is just to embrace that Milton Friedman's been out in the newspaper a little bit because of the 75th anniversary of some of the things he wrote. And you know, that profit is not our only motive. We don't think profit being our only motive is best for our company, for our customers, for our employees. And it's not best for our shareholders that we need to embrace stakeholders that are you know, more than just the shareholder. And by doing that, I think we'll serve the shareholders best as well. But even if we didn't, we would do it. Not everybody agrees with that. Milton Friedman didn't agree with that. We reject that singular focus on just maximizing shareholder return in the short term. We don't wanna live that way. We don't think it's best as citizens and society. 
And I think our customers prefer people who are outward with saying. Well, every right-thinking American uh, should reject racism. I mean, it has no place in our society, clearly. And America has gone through a lot of pain trying to get to where we are at today. And we still haven't healed all the various wounds. I'm just wondering what you think of the Black Lives Matter as an organization, not as a, an ideology. According to their manifesto, they're anti-capitalist. And yet you have major companies on Wall Street and on Main Street making donations to the group. Is that jarring? And how would companies who embrace conscious capitalism uh, see that? I'm more familiar with the movement Black Lives Matters than the than the organization Black Lives Matters and their each of their policies or whatever. So that's not I have been reading and versing myself on being an anti-racist organization. You know, so I, I don't know that I can answer that the way you want me to answer that. But like I I understand the movement. I understand what it how much work our organization has to do be an anti-racist organization. And I, it doesn't you know, it's like I'm not concerned about everybody else's organization trying to do that. The, the work to do is here. The work is in front of us, you know, uh, as an example, I have found in digging in and trying to get better at this, that some of our white management team were using their own networks about finding awesome people that they used to work with. And sometimes there'd be an awesome person that they worked with before when we were looking for a recruit and we wouldn't open up that job enough to the public to allow more people of color to apply because they're, you know, they saw this awesome programmer they used to work with before. And that was an example of something, a shift I had to be more anti-racist. So rather than getting involved in whatever or the other organization says, or what the Republicans say or the Democrats say, we're just trying to make this place conscious. That's what we have control over. You know, I can't comment on every organization in society. I just can tell you what we're going to stand for and what we're going to stand up for. Uh, and that's to be anti-racist. Alex, did you want to come in on that? I, I, I would, because... You know, this is something that the conscious capitalism community and movement has been talking about a lot. And there is an important debate and, and rich discussion that we had here about the role that businesses can play in anti-racist efforts and the role that capitalism can play in being anti-racist. And it's not that there is a universal view on this. There is an open debate. At Conscious Capitalism, over the last couple of months, we've had a number of speakers that have presented really important views on this. So for example, Ambassador Andrew Young, former mayor of Atlanta, for, former ambassador to the United Nations, the first African-American from the United States to be an ambassador to the United Nations. When he was speaking to the conscious capitalism community, he talked about how businesses played a critical role in the civil rights movement back in the 60s. They were the ones who drove a lot of the change because they had positions of influence both in the community and in their own practices and how that's important to carry on today. We had Magat Wade, the CEO of Skin is Skin, who is a board member of Conscious Capitalism uh, just last week, talk about how capitalism plays a critical role in anti-racist efforts because it creates opportunities for individuals to voluntarily engage each other and create opportunities that otherwise wouldn't exist. So there, there's a need for us to have these conversations right now in order to really get to that ideal future that we all want that is anti-racist. And the, the great thing about the conscious capitalism movement is that it is creating space for these conversations, for business leaders to really grapple with what this means, how they're presencing themselves, and 
what they're able to do, uh, again, not at a political level even, but really at an ethical and personal level in doing the right thing, because that drives so much of business and drives what we do as human beings interacting with each other in society. So a national conversation and a local conversation is a good thing and people can agree to disagree. That's right. And then and that's one of the things that a conscious capitalist approach to business really offers is the the need to have those kinds of conversations of the values of a company, both what those values are. We'll be right back after this free break and continue our interview with Alexander McCobin of Conscious Capitalism and Rob Waldron of Curriculum Associates. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at adoptuskids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. According to Nielsen's report, Global Survey on Corporate Social Responsibility, 43% of consumers said they would prefer to spend more on products and services that support worthwhile causes. That tells you something about where our economy and society is headed. So many businesses that adopt conscious capitalism do so not, not just because it's the right thing to do, although that is a driving influence. A lot of them adopt this approach because it's just a better way of doing business. It's what consumers want nowadays, and they've wanted for a while, just they're more outspoken about it now and have more options. It's a way to actually retain great employees because they associate with and support the purpose of the company. It's a way to attract investors now who see that this creates better returns in the long run. It's a way for leaders to feel fulfilled from their own work, not just striving to make to make a certain number on the screen get bigger. There are so many reasons for businesses to adopt conscious capitalism from both an ethical and a practical perspective. Uh, Rob, let's talk about COVID-19. It's had a major impact on all our lives. We hope we'll get that, that vaccine soon and life will return to a more normal way. How has Curriculum Associates been helping meet the unique needs of students, teachers and parents across the country that have been struggling to adapt to this new world of remote and hybrid learning? First, I just want to say that uh, anything I say about what we've done uh, pales in comparison to the incredible work that I've seen teachers, administrators and, and even the children doing to try to overcome this crisis. And, and my thoughts uh, are with them all the time because it's such a difficult set of circumstances you know, getting on the phone and trying to engage, you know, my, my own teenage son at 17 when he's sitting on Zoom all day, you know, that's a hard mm. thing to do and uh, even harder for a kindergartner, or first grader and so forth. So, you know, our company in the spring right away uh, tried to make our, our content available for free in the spring. We, you know, it, it took us about a decade to get to, to uh, 8 million kids on the platform. And in seven days, we added an additional million when we offered that. Uh, so just an extraordinary thing. We we also made some at-home resources, uh, downloadable things that parents could use. And, you know, again, in, in nine to 10 days, had 1.1 million downloads of that. And, you know, just one of those was printed and an international paper in Georgia printed it for 88,000 kids in their district. So it just kind of took off from, from there. 
we actually created resources and research on what was the kind of the spring learning loss, the fact that you know these kids aren't going to be getting this content as people are waiting to find devices and so forth. And how do we get teachers ready for kids that are a little bit further behind? And so we created new reporting and so forth. So examples there, a lot of the professional development things, you know, we, we, we suddenly went to virtual professional development. Teachers need to be taught some new skills about how to engage kids. You know, one of the our products in math, a product called Ready Math, um, we engage in mathematical discourse where, where students talk to each other about how they solve the math problem so they can recognize that there can be two or three ways to, or more to get to the same answer. Um, and we engage in discourse. And so how, how do you do that on Zoom? So right. that's a pretty <laughs> you know, common. Little, yeah. And so, you know, that's not, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be helpful, but there's a little bit, particularly in the beginning when you're, you're doing placement diagnosing and so forth with kids that it's a little bit like, you know, having the parent cheat on the kid's eye exam, <laughs> like not helpful. Like you know, if, you, if you want, you know, because what we do is we adapt our instruction, our, our instruction based on the particular profile of the kid. And, and during COVID and we are at home, it's even more important. You know, parents are doing the equivalent of gaming the eye test. And it's not, you know, they just want what's best for their kids. I'm not trying to blame mm-hmm. them, but it doesn't allow our instructional pathways to be as precise. So, you know, we're, we had to go out there and communicate to parents, you know, hey, don't, you know, there's no high stakes here. It's just a placement thing to figure out how to give your kid the instruction they need. It's not, uh, they're not getting a grade. Um, so, you know, things like that have come up, you know, a lot of it has to do with the sort of back and forth of being in and out of school hybrid. You think you're, you know, you got some teachers who are teaching some of the kids before them while, uh, live while they also are supposed to be teaching, you know, on their one device kids remotely who can't come. Frankly, some of it has to do with like figuring out how to use the leverage of a corporation to get Chromebooks to a particular school because there's, you know, there's a run on them. We've been as busy and busy as ever. And so again, I'm not complaining, but it's much harder to be, but, uh, you know, our, our people, you know, are really working 15 hours, uh, to serve this time. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a stressful time for everybody. And, and I think people underestimate how complicated it is to go from teaching 54 million children live. Mm-hmm to 50, probably 45 million children remotely or in a hybrid situation. Uh, it's probably closer to 50 without having a ton of money for technology and so forth in schools because there's not enough and, and uh, where not every kid has access and all the inequity that comes in that. Right. It looks like your organization has done a great job and has grown your business during this and taking care of the students and teachers. Yeah, it did. It did grow quite a bit. But, you know, I literally, you know, in, in March, we just we told our salespeople to stop selling and start mm. serving. And uh, I think that led to good things later, but it, but it, you know, it was just the right thing. To do. So Rob, do you think it's going to change the nature of education and maybe business generally? Once we come out of this pandemic, everybody has learned to adapt to telecommuting, even though many have been already doing it, educational commuting and home offices. Is this going to be a paradigm shift. I, I think um, I think corporations are going to be much more accepting of remote workplaces and so forth. But you know, if you listen to folks like the guy who runs Netflix, Reed Hastings, and others, you know, he said, "Well, when are you going to want everybody back?" And he said, 12 hours after the vaccine." Right. So I think <laughs> uh, you know that'll happen some, but I, I think within schools, you know, there'll be more comfort with technology, more comfort with a professional development session that's remote rather than live. But children need teachers live. A uh, a second grader needs a hug right. 
social interactions. And, and yeah, they need other children around. And I, 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 I'm sure things will shift with technology in schools, but I actually think the opposite, uh, John, that the respect after a bunch of parents have been homeschooling their kids, the respect they have for the teachers of this mm. country will increase. And hopefully the profession itself will, will be more respected than it's been in, uh, in the last uh, couple decades. And, and people are going to want their kids live because they know more than ever that it's needed. And I, I think it will uh, have the opposite. Impact. Well, of course, people will... there are always some families who homeschool their kids. Now, this is sort of a bit like mass homeschooling in America done remotely. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't the, but the country wasn't ready right. for it. Right? It, so it just it, happened to um, suddenly. Yeah. So let's go back to conscious capitalism. Either of you, any thoughts on what's going on in America at the moment? We just had a lot of street riots. It's a polarized country politically. There's just extremes on the left and right. It's divided down the middle. Do you think there's going to be some healing? Well, there's certainly a need for healing and conscious capitalism provides a way forward for that because as, as we talked about earlier, it unifies people from all sides of the political spectrum. And what's interesting with the pandemic that we were just talking about is at the start of this, a lot of pundits and commentators said that this was an acid test for conscious capitalism explicitly in the Financial Times. They said, this is when we're going to see whether business leaders we're just using this to greenwash, make themselves sound good, but they're going to give up on it in order to just survive and become cutthroat in this challenging environment. And what we've actually seen is that not only have previous conscious capitalist leaders like Rob doubled down on their principles to get through this. Like he said, I love what you just said, Rob, of focus more on serving than selling. Mm. This. We've seen a lot of conscious capitalist leaders do that. We've also seen other business leaders who may have been skeptical about this before realize this is actually how they're going to get through it, that people are paying attention to what they're doing in the pandemic right now and in this divided country. They're deciding which businesses they're going to stick with. They're deciding which businesses they're going to consume from or that they're going to work for. And they want businesses that are looking to that higher purpose, that are looking to elevate humanity in their work. This provides an opportunity for that kind of healing. And it's really incumbent on businesses and business leaders to take that moral leadership and show that positive unifying path forward, especially when it, it seems like there isn't enough of that in society. Alexander, let me throw this out at you, uh, and, and Rob, if he wants to uh, jump in. Do you think the concept of, for example, opportunity zones, which was a bipartisan issue, although signed into law by President Trump, fits into notions of conscious capitalism, creating jobs in poor neighborhoods in America? Without, without focusing on any individual policy, we need more jobs in, in underserved areas in the country. And there's so much more work that businesses can do in, the, in these areas, both from a, a moral standpoint, we, we need to support the, the individuals in society that haven't had access to opportunities before. Those opportunities need to be created. And there's, there's also an economic opportunity that, with this. Time and time again, we see that businesses have overlooked opportunities to serve more people and to create thriving communities and it takes a push sometimes for the, for the first mover to go in and show others what that path can look like and for businesses to 
take a risk and, and show that there is this opportunity available. So there, there's a demand, a need, and an opportunity for businesses to, to work in these areas. What about uh, the minimum wage? Do you set any standards in terms of compensation? So again, there's no checklist for conscious capitalist companies. They set different different wages, but what we do consistently see is conscious capitalist companies don't look to what the law requires. They look to what they're able to do pretty consistently. They pay above minimum wage. They pay what what. Hey John, let me. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to give you a quick example of that. I think it's five years ago. Now we're one of the first, or maybe six or seven years ago. Uh, we were one of the first to introduce the $15 minimum wage. And I was asked at the time in the press or whatever, do you, do you want this to be the policy of the United States? I'm like, it's not my job to make the policies in the United States. My job is to make the minimum wage for curriculum associates. And we made it $15 minimum wage. And because we were first, we got a, you know, I got on this little TV program here or whatever. I was just so struck yeah. by the reaction to that. We also pay bonuses of up to 10% for folks in that category. And, um, and it, you know, principally in, in our case impacted folks who were working in our where in our book warehouse, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I would go to a restaurant and someone would recognize me and I would get a <laughs> hug from the waitress I had. Uh, and the first day we said something about it, we had set my, you know, 70 phone calls come in, three people asked me to run for president. Uh, seriously, <laughs> you know, the thing, um, I would say about that is like, I, I didn't do it for PR. I was a kind of opposed to thing, but then this TV show had heard about it called, I, you know, we did it because I, I, morally for me, I would have literally someone walk in my office and say, you know, I got to pay this 28 year old, unbelievable person. Who's a developer, a programmer, another 5k a year. And I'd be like, well, we should do it. And I wouldn't blink. And then, you know, someone would tell me that we got to keep our wages for the people who are lifting 45, 40 box, pound boxes at a time from 12 to 12.50, we really should look at that. And you're like, you gotta, you gotta be kidding me. Like, I don't blink at the kid who's sitting at his desk and not, you know, I'm obviously a huge contributor to the company, but like, we have to do something here. It's not right. And then we did the right thing. And it turned out that the right thing in ways that I never expected led to people knowing about it and school districts knowing about it or whatever, but we did the right thing because it was the right thing. And it ended up being great for our business. Millennials and young adults seem to be driving a lot of the change in America. How do they view conscious capitalism? Are they aware of its ramifications, Alex? We've overwhelmingly seen support from millennials and Gen Z that's coming up for conscious capitalism. They are really driving a lot of this change, both young entrepreneurs to employees asking themselves, is this where I want to spend my time to choosing what products and services they buy and who this, this really is driving a lot of the change and a big reason why more and more companies are coming around to needing to adopt it. That's what all of their stakeholders are demanding, expecting. I have a slightly different view, John. I have a 22 year old employee, a 70 year old employee. I have a 50 year old wife and every single one of them wants change. Now I haven't found a generational difference in the, in the everybody wants change. change. Something's not working right now. We got to do something different. Mm. And, um, and so I, I, I used to feel a little bit more the way Alexander described, but, uh, today I feel everybody, people who wear red hats and blue hats and everybody wants change, you know, that, uh, that works here. There's a, a small wee bank in New Jersey. It donates 10% of its bottom line to charities every year. This was long before your movement came into force. It's run by uh, people who describe themselves as Christians. Then at the infamous or famous Bear Stearns, 
one of their managers used to instruct his traders, give 10% of your income to charity. I just wonder, is that sort of conscious capitalism at play? What do you think of it? There's certainly a role for philanthropy in capitalism. It's, it's important, but I don't want people to take away from this that conscious capitalism is just philanthropy, writing a donation at the end of the day or corporate social responsibility. That, that's a good thing, but conscious capitalism is much more fundamental to the core of what a business does. It's about the way a business produces its goods and services. It's the way it makes its money, not just what it does afterwards. And making sure that it is putting profit in the role of serving a higher purpose in the business's activities, that it's about creating so much value for every stakeholder group that a business touches in the productive process that it doesn't need to make write a check at the end of the day in order to make up for the wrongs it's done before. Anything it does is just on top of how much value it's already created for society. Mm. And that's really at the core of conscious capitalism. Because then you could look at the example, Alex, of Whole Foods. It had the practice of buying from small farmers and organic foods and so on, that, that kind of idea. Yeah, and Whole Foods has a foundation. They're engaged in philanthropy too. But what, what the real change has been in the world from that company has been this natural foods industry that it's really built up and the support for small farmers like that and so many things that it does in its everyday practices. And the same with Curriculum Associates, just what what's Curriculum Associates has done in providing these amazing resources and that $15 minimum wage for its employees and the culture that you've developed, Rob, in and of itself is so valuable. That's the core. And philanthropy on top of that is just on top of that, literally. So we're going to wrap up here, Rob and Alex. Where do you see the conscious capitalism going from here? And what's next up on your agenda? John, I think, I think the answer to that question is not an exciting answer. It's just little levers. Okay. So in my case today, where you know there'll be a couple million kids on our platform and I'm going to deliver a, a lesson on whether, you know, maybe 10,000 times on some child who needs to understand ounces to pounds or, or inches to feet, it's this uh, concept called proportional relationships. And I want to figure out why between the fifth and sixth minute of, of that lesson, that maybe three or 4% of the kids quit, we're not engaging them. And, and did, did that lesson work for African-American boys on free lunch in the state of New Jersey? Okay. And I want to make that better. And I want to do that again tomorrow and the next day. And I want people to have voice here to, to, to serve schools every day. So hundreds and hundreds of little levers and shut down the noise, frankly, of all the different things going on in the world to just make that better every day. 50% of our kids are probably of color, we think, and 60% are on free and reduced lunch, the federal definition of poverty. And we just have work to do to serve them. And I want 100% concentration on that. And whether you call us conscious or not conscious or red, blue, anything else, I don't care. Like, what are we doing to be great at being a service to others? And that's how I think about it. Our role as an organization is to support more businesses like, like Curriculum Associates in taking those endeavors on. We're at an amazing point in the conscious capitalism movement where we're no longer trying to persuade people that this is the right approach. A decade ago, these ideas were laughed out of boardrooms, they were rejected from conferences, they weren't taken seriously. They're becoming the norm now, at least in rhetoric. And 
the opportunity and the need now is for us to provide more practical tools and resources and support structures for business leaders to go from the nice sounding rhetoric, the writing on the wall, to putting it into practice, to knowing how to take action on this and really make a difference. And that's where our priority is really shifting to in order to make a bigger impact. Rob and Alex, it's been a great pleasure and fascinating talking to you both. I hope to catch up again. Good luck with everything you do. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.